This is Guns and Butter. What the Green New Deal is, is to provide a sort of human face to wealth accumulation. Instead of going in with what previously was described as IMF economic medicine, where you impose certain things on, on sovereign countries, you now come up and say, well, we must uh, endorse a new strategy, which um, is to invest in the environment and so on and so forth. It, it's a complex subject to get into, but it, I can say that, in a, in a sense, this Green New Deal is fake. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Bankrupting the U.S. Economy is No Solution. Michel Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we discuss the decision-making process leading to the closure of economic activity, the new normal, the destruction of humanity, real economy capitalism versus financial capitalism, assets picked up at negative prices, the World Economic Forum, the green economy, speculation, and new forms of indebtedness. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. 193 countries worldwide have had their economy shut down now for many months, including the closure of schools, all small and medium-sized businesses, museums, churches, and on and on. We are living through an unprecedented, self-imposed economic meltdown. You have noted that the orders to carry out this shutdown of economies must have entailed a massive decision-making process by an enormous number of people and institutions worldwide. How would you describe the process by which this closure has been mandated? Well, it's something which is not easy to analyze because none of these mechanisms are actually in the public domain. What we do know is that the World Economic Forum has played a very significant role in the, uh, both in the pandemic itself as well as in the, uh, you know, the restructuring of the global economy. I should say that there are several phases in this uh, restructuring of the global economy. The first one was, uh, of course, was in February when the stock markets collapsed, leading to a, a very uh, significant uh, redistribution of wealth and also the impoverishment of, of people who had put their life savings uh, in the stock market. And uh, this was an initial phase starting in February. And then in March, we had what was called the, the lockdown. Uh, in other words, the closing down of the real economy. The real economy wasn't closed in February. And then in March, 
Now, closing down the real economy in 193 member states of the United Nations is, uh, is unprecedented in world history. And it, it requires a decision-making apparatus at different levels of the financial establishment, the US government, foreign policy, the, the Pentagon, US intelligence, and so on. Uh, but it is, uh, and it is labeled in a sense, global governance. I mean, that, that label there has, has now emerged, global governance, and that uh, the global economy was, so to speak, closed down, not totally closed down, but closed down um, with a view to resolving a public health crisis. Now, again, without getting into the debate on, on the pandemic, um, closing down an economy is not the solution by any means. Uh, closing down an economy, uh, in, in essence, disrupts what we might call real life. Uh, it's the reproduction of real life. In other words, uh, we produce food, we produce services, and that productive process within the real economy constitutes the basis for sustaining employment, uh, sustaining production, and so on. So that this act of closing down the world economy and then presenting it as a solution, uh, first of all, borders on ridicule from the point of view of, of economic and social analysis, but it also, it's diabolical. It, it presents a solution which ultimately doesn't make sense. Anybody in his right mind says that millions of people have been driven into unemployment. Um, they are themselves the victims of, of, well, they themselves are going to have problems of, of health linked to the fact that they no longer, their jobs have been erased. So in, in other words, this scenario is diabolical, but at the same time, it's not being addressed and people ultimately accept it. Uh, and now it's become part of the election process in the United States where one party is saying we're in favor of restoring the real economy and the other party says, no, uh, we have to maintain the lockdown to save lives. Uh, and they're not saving lives by closing down an economy. Any, any, uh, anybody who has common sense will understand that, that the, this closure um, is leading to mass poverty worldwide. You have expressed the idea that the closing down of national economies worldwide constitutes the destruction of humanity. And you've already begun to discuss this. In what ways, in your opinion, is this global shutdown destroying humanity? Well, the thing is, if we look at, if we look at the structure of global capitalism, we can distinguish between broadly two main components. One is the financial apparatus, the money apparatus. Uh, it is becoming increasingly concentrated and controlled by a 
handful of large financial institutions together with the multi-billionaires, the foundations, and so on. Now, that um, arm of the global capitalist system is also, is also the instrument of debt, of indebtedness. It lends money to the governments, it lends money to the, you know, to private individuals or companies. Uh, of course, the Federal Reserve is part of that. Now, what has happened uh, is that the real economic landscape, the financial sector operates from offices in Wall Street. It doesn't produce anything. It has speculative instruments, uh, which it uses to make the stock market go up and down and then appropriate speculative gains. But it doesn't actually produce anything. And the real wealth lies in what I call the real economy. There's an economic landscape. And what has happened is that um, this um, pandemic and specifically the lockdown, which started in March, uh, what it does is that it destabilizes small and medium-sized enterprises worldwide. It precipitates entire sectors of the global economy uh, into bankruptcy. It, it's the sectors of manufacturing, retail trade, tourism, and so on, uh, not to mention the service economy. Now, the other dimension when I say it's, it's, uh, it, it's a war against humanity is that the, the rules on social distancing or social distancing on the one hand, but also on the fact that these rules are now leading to the closure of schools. Can you imagine the closure of schools, universities, colleges, trading centers? All of this is being closed down on the pretext and justification that people gathering at school or at the university will start um, spreading the virus and it is justified with a health, I mean, ultimately with a, with a health criterion, which doesn't make sense. Because when you close down schools and universities, again, you're closing down civil society as we know it. You close down college football in the United States, you're, well, that's a feature of, of identity and culture and sport and so on. But the, the extent of manipulation uh, is, is beyond description. No more, no more museums, no more concerts, no more, you know, uh, no more colleges and universities. And what happens to the economic landscape in the course of the last few months, literally thousands tens of thousands of um, small and medium-sized enterprises in the United States have been driven into bankruptcy. And this process is worldwide. It's worldwide. And it's this relationship between the financial arm of capitalism and the real economy. And what, what the financial arm of capitalism wants to do with the big banks and financial institutions, and they're supported by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the regional development banks, which are part of the UN system, but ultimately they, they're integrated and they're controlled by dominant financial interests. What that does is it, it deregulates and destroys uh, the economic landscape, and then it creates conditions in 
in the wake of of this pandemic to pick up the pieces, so to speak. In other words, to pick up the bankrupt uh, airline companies. And I can tell you, having reviewed um, macroeconomic policy uh, throughout my career, uh, look, looking at previous crises, that those assets will be taken over at a negative price. Um, what is envisaged in the aftermath of this crisis is a massive uh, credit debt project in relation to the governments, uh, both in the developed countries and the developing countries. In the developing countries, it's, it's largely the IMF, the World Bank, the regional development banks, which will be in charge of this, interfacing with the World Economic Forum. But what is happening is that um, the multi-billionaires will take over real assets, and then they will say, uh, we are prepared to take over these real assets, but you have to give us some um, bailouts to ensure that we don't run into, uh, you know, into non-performing loans or something. Uh, and in other words, they will take over these assets at a negative price. I've seen it happen in, in other lesser circumstances where the multi you know, a multi-billion dollar conglomerate comes in and says, we're going to take over these airlines, no problem. Um, give us the prize, $400 million, okay, uh, but we'll need to have some support from the government so that, you know, the, the risks involved and give us two or three billion. I've seen this kind of, of um, economic arm twisting. And what it means that they are going to appropriate all the assets which they can pick up and then there will be some kind of a recovery, but then there will be a debt um, uh, burden which will fall on the governments to such an extent that governments will no longer be able to finance any of their social programs, but in any event, their social programs have now been literally ransacked uh, as a result of social distancing and social engineering. So that is the world we're entering into. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, Bankrupting the U.S. Economy is No Solution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The the public debt will simply will will double or triple overnight, and then the governments will be indebted up to their ears. There will be a fiscal crisis at the state. Why? Because you've got millions of people who are unemployed and who don't pay taxes, and who are getting maybe some unemployment uh, insurance payments in between. And so that the whole logic of, of the economic uh, apparatus is changing. The, the, the creditors, the global creditors will say, we will come to the rescue. And the World Economic Forum, which uh, ordered the lockdown, is now coming to the rescue of the companies, uh, the companies which have been affected. And so what's going to happen is uh, that the governments will be indebted up to their ears. They will privatize everything which can be privatized. 
They will implement massive austerity measures. Uh, and uh, ultimately what, what is happening is that the state apparatus, it, it has already happened, will essentially be privatized and integrated into this notion of global governance. And the global, the world government would be controlled by these uh, dominant financial institutions linked up, of course, with the, the state apparatus of the dominant power in the world, which is the United States of America. And uh, at the same time, we're going, to, we're going to experience, and we are already experiencing that, a process of global impoverishment, which is unprecedented, and which is the result of a, ultimately is a result of a project which was implemented in, uh, in late January, uh, initially under the auspices of the World Health Organization. What boggles the mind is that people don't see, they're so much affected by, by this fear campaign, they don't understand what's going on. And uh, what is, is disturbing is that people uh, are saying, no, we mustn't reopen the economy uh, and they don't understand that reopening the economy is is the restoration of employment and jobs and, and economic activity. And people are now caught into, into a discourse which instructs them because there's fear. They say if you, if you support the reopening of the economy, uh, it's going to have impacts. Uh, the pandemic is there, etc. But this doesn't make sense because the... The closure of the economy is also the closure of the public health system. It's the crisis within the public health system. And, uh, and then there's no evidence that having a mask or practicing social distancing constitutes a solution to this global, uh, to this global crisis. So that what is going to happen in the, you know, in the wake of this crisis, restoring the so-called new normal, um, the World Economic Forum has called it a global reset, a global reset. And it has already set the boundaries. It said, well, we must uh, start investing in the New Green Deal. Now, the New Green Deal was an initiative set up by Rockefeller. It has a long history. I won't go into the details. But uh, essentially, um, the mechanisms which are uh, unfolding is that one, the state of these 193 countries, their governments, the state apparatus is uh, indebted up to their ears and uh, they are put in a situation where they have to borrow more money to, to pay back their debts. And in effect, what that means is that civilian governments and elected governments are no longer there anymore. They might be there in name, but who calls the shots? It's the economic powers which stand behind this project. The Green New Deal, or the green economy that you've mentioned, has been described as a new phase of capitalism. How is the so-called green economy different from capitalism in the past, or is it? Well, it, it, it's, in a sense, it's 
a continuation of um, of uh, the existing capitalist system. But uh, what what the Green New Deal is is to provide a sort of human face to uh, to wealth accumulation, and um, instead of going in with what previously was described as as IMF economic medicine, where you impose certain things on on sovereign countries, you now come up and say, well, we must uh, endorse uh, a new uh, a new strategy, uh, which um, is to invest in the environment and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it's a complex subject to get into, but it I can say that in a, in a sense, this Green New Deal is fake. Um, they're, they're saying, well, get out of uh, fossil fuels, uh, start investing in new industries. And then we discover that the people who control this Green New Deal is big oil. The Rockefellers and the history of the Rockefellers is important as a family. I mean, they've controlled the, the, the oil industry right from the beginning. It was a, almost a monopoly. And now what they're doing, and they've been doing this for quite some time, is to say, well, we have to, we have to invest in green projects. But those green projects are already taken over by, by global capitalism. And what this constitutes is a, a gigantic investment fund uh, which will channel um, uh, savings as well as it will have government support. But it will be an instrument, essentially, it will be an instrument of debt uh, management. Uh, and uh, I, I think a lot of people have, have, in a sense, endorsed this. Environmental groups have endorsed it. Okay? Now, when you say, uh, how is it that big oil is supporting? I, I've reviewed some of these uh, projects for the, you know, the, the environmental projects and the uh, Extinction Rebellion and so on and so forth. And then you discover that the Rockefeller Foundation is supporting <laughs> the, the campaign against, against fossil fuel. So uh, again, uh, it, it's something um, which is, is based on deception. And uh, uh, now we have, we have this great reset uh, which was announced in early June, and uh, the World Economic Forum is now talking about uh, the great reset of the global economy and the fact that this reset will present opportunities which didn't exist previously. And they're going to the they're going to the extreme of saying that wealth accumulation is more dangerous than the pandemic. They call it affluence. But these, these people are all multi-billionaires, okay? So they come in and say, we have to, you know, we have to redistribute wealth and we have to think of the poor and income distribution. But in fact, who is, who is calling the shots on this? It's the multi-billionaires who don't even pay taxes. Uh, so that uh, the the founder of the World Economic Forum, uh, Mr. Klaus Schwab, uh, came up and said, we only have one planet and we know that climate change could be the next global disaster. Okay. Now, this is all, uh, again, it, it's a global uh, climate change is a, is, a, is a frightening word. 
And CO2 is a frightening word, even though we breathe it in and out all the time. And now what they're doing is that they're saying, okay, uh, we have to address climate change, uh, and then we have to address the issue of green sustainable growth. Uh, there are lessons to be learned from this crisis. Uh, the irony is that the architects of this collapse in the global economy are now presenting the solutions. They are the cause of this collapse. The, the, the financial establishment elites were instrumental in uh, the collapse of the of the stock markets in in February. Some economists will say, well, it's something which is separate. I don't buy that because there's a fear campaign. There's media disinformation. Uh, there's inside trading. There's foreknowledge. All this is based on foreknowledge, and then it it really becomes a a nirvana for the speculator. There, when everybody is scared. The institutional speculators come in, and these are not individuals. These are powerful financial institutions. And then the price of crude oil collapses. Uh, this leads to destabilizing entire uh, national economies. Here in Canada, the province of Alberta is an absolute, has been literally undermined and destroyed. Uh, it's, the, it's the oil producing uh, region of Canada. Uh, so that all this uh, nonsense about saying we're going to start with a great reset, which is geared towards attenuating climate change and uh, and reducing uh, CO2, and then it's going to be sustainable. All this is, it, it borders on ridicule because it, it emanates from the people who initially ordered the lockdown. Hey, they ordered the lockdown. And that, from my standpoint, Either this is corrupt and criminal to order a lockdown of 193 countries, or it's simply it it borders on stupidity. I I would I don't think they're stupid to that extent. They ordered the lockdown in early March. They instrumented the the financial crash in 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 the month of February, and uh, now what is happening? Millions of Small and medium-sized enterprises are literally wiped off the map, off the economic landscape, and these people who are uh, talking about sustainable economies and societies uh, will be there essentially to concentrate wealth in, an, in a way which is unprecedented. Uh, and we know already, if we look at the landscape around us, I live in the in the greater Montreal area. Everything is closed. All the restaurants are, are driven into bankruptcy. The service economy is in crisis. The agriculture is in crisis. And now we see also that at least a partial collapse in world trade. Uh, there are certain commodities that simply don't reach the, the, the retail market anymore. And, and, and that's another dimension. Um, the U.S. economy in particular depends on made-in-China commodities. And those made-in-China commodities in some areas constitute 70% of, of production. Pharmaceuticals, uh, electronics, clothing, and so on. Uh, I mean, there's not a single area of retail trade with, which depends on made-in-China. And now you have a trade war. China is a partner of the United States from the business standpoint. 
It's the first partner. It, it brings in millions and millions of commodities. And, well, first of all, people's consumption has been flattened. They can't pay their rent. Uh, they can't pay their, their car. Everything is, is on a credit basis. And we're entering into a period of poverty and debt, uh, and I would say beyond poverty. This crisis is beyond poverty. It's poverty and despair. Uh, people are already poor. And at the same time, it, it's creating problems of mental health. That's amply documented. Then it is also triggering an increase in the drug trade. Uh, it is increasing the levels of alcoholism. And that is the kind of social fabric which has resulted largely uh, as a result of this lockdown of the global economy. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, Bankrupting the U.S. Economy is No Solution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And now uh, we have, in the United States, we have Joe Biden on the one hand and his ticket, which is sustaining the lockdown. I'm not making any kind of comment on U.S. elections. I'm a Canadian, okay? But that, that particular election platform is destructive. There's no doubt about it. Now, Trump is also destructive, but the issue is not one of party politics. The issue is one of restoring employment, restoring businesses, and establishing mechanisms whereby the, the let's say, the U.S. economy is, is, is functional. I'm amazed by the fact that the labor unions, AFL-CIO, but throughout the world, the, the labor unions are complicit. They're not saying we have to protect the rights of workers. No, they're not saying that. The millions of people unemployed, they're not saying restore the economy so that you can restore the right to work. No, they're siding, they're siding with, the, in, in the United States, de facto, they're siding with the, with the Democratic Party, which, which says we must maintain the lockdown. So we're, we're in a level of absurdity where people cannot reflect. And now the other important dimension is that people are not organizing themselves against this agenda. Uh, they are taking a stance in relation to, um, to internal conflicts. Anti-racism is, is, is at the forefront, um, but it, it plays a, a role because who are the racists? The racists are, the, are these multi-billion dollar capitalists sitting in Wall Street. Let's look at it in terms of history. It's, it's, the, it's the whole evolution of social structures. The, the issue there is that we have a project. Uh, it's a neoliberal project to close down the economy and to restructure, and nobody moves against, against this particular agenda. They are distracted and they join other uh, protest movements. It's, it might be anti-racism, or it might be environmental and so on, but they are not questioning the legitimacy of their respective governments 
whether it's at the state level or the national level, which has ordered the closure of every single business uh, in, in, the, in the country. So that is the world that we're in. And I think people simply have to wake up and use their common sense and say, yes, we want this economy to be restored tomorrow. And nothing prevents it from occurring. You have said that previously we had the structural adjustment programs of the IMF country by country. Now we have mechanisms of debt where entire groups of countries are subjected to the same IMF programs. Could you describe this newer form of indebtedness? You have said that these states are funding their own indebtedness and that if we look ahead, we are gearing up for the most enormous debt operation in world history. Well, I, I view this as an extension of the neoliberal agenda. It's not something which is new. As we discussed earlier, it's based on the fact that so many countries, particularly developing countries, are already under the brunt of the IMF World Bank conditionalities. Uh, it goes back to the 1980s when we had the so-called structural adjustment program where the IMF World Bank would intervene in the formulation of economic policy in, in, you know, in a large number of countries. There were more than 100 developing countries which were subjected to IMF and World Bank reforms. And they were negotiated on a piecemeal basis with uh, contracts of documents and so on. Uh, I became very familiar with this procedure when I worked as a consultant for the African Development Bank. And uh, usually they were very stringent conditions. So they would come into a country and say, you have to privatize this, you have to do that, you have to implement trade restrictions. And we have all the trade deals. Now, without getting into uh, the logic of these, of these um, initiatives, which characterized the whole post-war years uh, uh, under the so-called Britton Woods Institution, which were created in uh, 1944, um, what is now happening is, is, is a form of, I would call it sort of a global adjustment program. You know, you had the structural adjustment program at the level of each country, and the consequence has always been impoverishment, always. I, I don't know of any kind of IMF program which has really led to any kind of improvement in living conditions. Uh, it, it leads to wealth concentration and so on. And now what they're doing, instead of having uh, a, a debt operations negotiated with individual governments, they've come up with an envelope and a solution which they're presenting to all these countries. Well, I, I should mention that there's still there's still a division between the so-called developing countries, uh, those which are eligible for for World Bank loans, uh, lower income countries, and so on, and uh, the other categories of countries are the developed countries. In other words, Western Europe, um, the United States, Canada, Australia, etc. Uh, these are categorized as high-income countries, and there the, the institutional mechanism would, will be quite different. It won't be under World Bank IMF auspices. It will be the, the European Central Bank, 
private banking institutions, it's already happening. It is already happening. Back in uh, back a couple of months, uh, the Italian government issued bonds, their debt bonds, uh, with the support of Goldman Sachs. And we know that Goldman Sachs also has its inroads into into Italian politics. And so they, they issue these uh, these bonds, which are then, of course, picked up by, by so-called investors. And then what happens is a few days later, the, the credit evaluation, uh, standard and poor credit evaluation of Italian debt collapses to BB. Now, BB is junk bond status. Now, imagine, uh, you know, governments throughout the world have always tried to keep their their credit evaluation at A plus or B, you know, uh, A plus, A minus, but they never go lower than B. Uh, and now what's happening is is that it's it's a risk to invest in government bonds. Okay, it used to be very safe. It's a risk now because and they have created that, and they're lending billions and billions of dollars to governments, and eventually they will pick up. The pieces. That's what happens. Uh, privatize the, or privatize is not the word. It's and very often it's simply uh, bankrupt enterprises which are private. They get sold, and they get sold. As I said, they'll be selling them at very often at a, at a negative price. So that's the that's the framework. Global debt operation, very powerful, distinguishing between the developing countries. And then forcing the countries into a new relationship of adjustment where they, in fact, what they've done is they said, we're going to help you with this pandemic. And they don't even put conditions. But somewhere in the small print, there is, of course, these are loans which are based on conditionalities. And they'll come in and they will impose whatever they want because the, the, the governments will be non-existent. These are proxy government. Now, is, uh, is Standard & Poor culpable in rating Italian bonds as junk? Are they the cause? Or are these bonds really junk? I, I, think, I think both both procedures are there. Uh, what has um, created Italy's junk bond status is the crisis and the lockdown. Its tourist industry completely destroyed. Its avenues of regional trade are destroyed. Uh, there's paralysis. No people are traveling. So that, uh, in, in effect, uh, Wall Street is responsible for undermining and destroying the, the Italian economy. And at the same time, it is now because Standard & Poor's, these uh, credit evaluations emanate from Wall Street, they are now tagging uh, government debt with junk bond status to their, to their advantage. Because, again, uh, uh, there you have uh, a country, Italy, which is a source of a tremendous civilization and history, culture, but also technology and, and knowledge. And now it is on the verge of it's it's destroyed. They've destroyed a country. I, I can't say anything else. It's it's the destruction of an entire country. 
from if you destroy an economy, you destroy the country. You go back to the Stone Age. I, I'm exaggerating, of course, but th this is the nature of these drastic measures. And that to such an extent, here in Canada, uh, there was a, um, a debt instrument of something of the order of $150 billion. In fact, there's a lot more other instruments, which is financing, um, which serves as a social safety net during the period of crisis, and also sending money to medium-sized enterprises um, until so-called normalization. Now, what has happened is that $150 billion debt, the prime minister then uh, agrees with the opposition we will not have any parliamentary debate on this process of indebtedness. It's a no-no, okay? So that, that what is happening is that these 193 member states of the UN are simply indebting themselves up to their ears. The institutions such as the IMF, the World Bank, they send delegations there and they said, we're here to help you. Well, they always say that, we're here to help you. And in effect, what they are doing is they are creating a shift in the, the structure of political power and they are imposing what, uh, well, what Rockefeller has called global governance, okay? And the, and the Rockefeller family is, is playing a key role in this whole thing. Now, uh, bear in mind, you, you asked me about the, the evolution and um, I, I, I've lived through some of the very brutal coups in Latin America, including the Pinochet period in Chile, uh, as well as the, um, the coup in Argentina, which uh, led to uh, military dictatorship. And uh, Wall Street was behind it. David Rockefeller would come in. And of course, the Rockefeller family used, used to own the, the, the oil reserves in Venezuela. It was standard oil. Now, what I'm saying is their continuity. The people who supported Pinochet in the 1970s, which was it was Kissinger and Rockefeller, they're there picking up the pieces today with this with this um, World Economic Forum plan to reset the global economy, and it's not a bunch of multi-billionaires which are going to resolve the problem for us. Their their objective has always been to appropriate wealth, and uh, this for them this great reset. Um, it's big stuff for them. Um, they are looking at the whole institutional fabric of how they can dominate because they don't necessarily dominate the entire uh, economic landscape. Uh, our economies have been built with small and medium-sized enterprises. Many of them are, uh, you know, on contract with big companies, but nonetheless, it's a different kind of, of framework. And, and people will live this in, in their respective hometowns. Uh, and, and then they will say, oh, no, my, uh, my grocery store has shut, but uh, various uh, main street activities are simply non-existent anymore. Uh, and that is, the, that is the great reset. And that's why people have to move. They really have to, they have to move together. They have to understand it and question the legitimacy of the various components of this project, uh, which is using uh, a public health concern as a pretext and a justification. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. 
Today's show, Bankrupting the U.S. Economy is No Solution. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have noted that assets will be picked up at negative prices. What are negative prices? Well, I can give you uh, an example um, of a negative price. Uh, in 1997, during the Korean, well, during the so-called Asian crisis, there was a, a loan agreement under IMF auspices, which was imposed on the Korean government. And within that um, framework, they had ordered the transfer of some of the big South Korean conglomerates, are called the Chaibals, to private U.S. hands. And the, the way it worked was that it was particularly was the case of Korea First Bank. I don't want to get into too much details, but a group, a business group from Texas came in and they purchased, if my memory is correct, they purchased Korea First Bank, which was the second largest institution in the country, for something like $400 million. And then they said, oh, but we need to have some security uh, against non-performing loans of the Korea First Bank. (laughs) So then they were handed uh, something of the order of 1.6, I can't remember the exact numbers, $1.6 billion uh, of government subsidies to essentially... Uh, enable them to handle whatever risks might be incurred in a $400 million purchase. So that essentially they're making something like $1.2 billion um, out of this transaction. That's a negative price. Okay, it, it's, it's not presented as a negative price. There's a transaction and the, the, the transaction for $400 million was conditional upon the government giving them bailout money of the order of $1.6. Okay. Now, that's an example where, in effect, they're picking up a career first bank for, for a negative price. And, and mind you, the Koreans are not stupid. They realize that. There, there was a lot of discussion and debate. Now, I can tell you, the whole airline industry in Latin America is, 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 uh, is on the verge of bankruptcy. The major airlines. You've got the Colombian Airlines. Um, uh, you've got Aeromexico. You've got LAN, Chile. Uh, Aero Mexico is is in a very difficult situation. They're not going to pay full price for these for these companies. No way. They say we'll take them over, and we'll reassure that they will start functioning again. And of course, some of those companies will simply be wiped out. So that's the, the framework in which we are. Now, with regard to the South Korean example, what government was it that was subsidizing the takeover of the Korean bank that you referred to? And was this money paid back? No, the money was not paid back. What happened is that this uh, debt operation was launched at the height of an election campaign in December of 1997, and uh, the presidential candidate who who entered was Kim Dae-jung, who was a progressive figure and also very critical of the of the of the IMF program. But then they said 
if you don't accept it, you don't become president. Uh, and there was a showdown. They signed the agreement on Christmas Eve of 1997 with the major financial institutions in Wall Street, etc. But the, the, the issue there is that the, the, the government becomes heavily indebted uh, and then uses that money from foreign creditors to finance bailouts. This is happening in the United States as well. Okay, so you have a you come in and you buy Korea First Bank for 400 million, and then uh, they say, "Well, we have to be careful because they're non-performing loans." Now, the 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 only thing that they can lose, <laughs> I mean, the irony is that then they get 1.6 billion for a payment of 400 million dollars. Okay, so that anybody in Korea could have bought up. Career First Bank at a negative price because the condition for purchasing it was that they would give them handouts. Okay. Who was giving the handouts? Who was well, financing this? The handouts would come from the Korean South Korean government, but it would be based on on a multi-billion dollar loans to uh, enable them to enter into this kind of debt operation so that in effect the Korean government was subject to a multi-billion dollar uh, debt operation. I can't remember the exact figures, but it was enormous. And the, there were several other Asian countries which were also affected by this. They're, now, they had to repay debt and they, and they also received new debt. And then they used part of this debt to compensate the Western companies that came in very generously offering to buy out Korea's um, economy at a, at a bargain price. Now, uh, General Motors took over Daewoo. I, I don't have the exact details on that, but I think that they probably got it at a negative price as well. Well, they, well Michelle, it doesn't make any sense. Why would the South Korean government go into debt to finance foreign companies from taking over South Korean companies. Well, that's what you call colonialism. There, you know, there's something like 28,000 troops stationed in South Korea. The policies of that country since the end of World War II have been in the hands of the United States, essentially. And the Chai Balls are obedient and so on. They're very much under the clutch of, of big money capital. But if we want to make analogies to what's happening now, I would say this, something similar is occurring. How is it that some of very large companies who are the victims of the lockdown are accepting the authority of Wall Street, essentially it's Wall Street and the big banks which are, which are instrumenting this lockdown. But I mean, you, you, have, you have hotel chains, uh, you have airlines, your bus companies, you, you have all sorts of, of real economy undertakings. And why is it not discussed at the Chamber of Commerce? Why is it the Chamber of Commerce in, in different localities are not saying, uh, wow, this situation where the lockdown is imposed on us, are we going to do something about it? Do we have a lobby group or what? No, they don't. They accept it. And that's exactly what happened in Korea in the wake of the Asian crisis. 
Well, thank you for bringing that up because I too have been mystified as to why all of these American businesses, and some of them are quite large, are not fighting back against this. They're just taking it. First of all, that's a very important question. And I, I think at this juncture, there has to be a coalescence of these business interests let's say if we take the United States or Canada where there's, there are regional economies, there has to be some kind of coalescence between social movements, workers' movements, and business interests across the land, an understanding that this is not only a battle against labor rights, okay? In other words, people lose their jobs. Yes, it's, it's a despicable form of of interfering in the in the so-called labor market and destroying people's lives. But at this juncture, I would say we have to protect real economy capitalism, okay? Uh, the irony is that the left is siding with uh, Joe Biden uh, saying that, the, you know, that the economy must stay closed. And some people even on the left are saying, well, we're going to build a new paradigm in the wake of the lockdown. That, that kind of observation simply doesn't make sense because the people who are dictating the, the reset are the same people who are calling the shots as far as the lockdown is concerned. I see that in the United States, there are initiatives being taken at the state level, but the big obstacle there is that it has become an issue of party politics. Okay? And uh, the Democratic Party is much more aligned with what some people call the deep state, or what, or in fact, they align with global capitalism, global finance capitalism. Uh, but again, from my standpoint, this is a conflict within the capitalist economy, and it, it's the hegemony of finance capital over, over the real economy, real capitalism, as well as state public uh, service activities and so on. Well, we're not at a point in our history where we can start saying we would like to implement a new uh, a new economic architecture. I think we have to protect the economic architecture which is currently being destroyed. You don't develop a solution to this crisis from what some people call a paradigm, okay? No, we're talking about real structures, real relations between people, uh, but mechanisms of deceit and manipulation and disinformation. And of course, the, without, without the global media and media disinformation and, and, and the fear campaign, this, uh, this project would not succeed. People are scared and they are accepting the authority of their governments. And what I think is most dangerous is that the truth is being suppressed and the lie is becoming the truth. The lie is becoming the truth. And when that happens, there's no moving backwards. Uh, they are telling us certain things on the media. This, uh, I, without getting into details, they are uh, also uh, inciting people to accept the authority of their governments and to uh, obey 
social distancing, the mask, etc., without any debate. They are also targeting medical doctors and health personnel who have presented another perspective on, on what is actually going on with regard to the virus. So we are at a very dangerous crossroads in our history. And when the lie prevails, when the lie prevails, the decision makers believe in their own lies. I, I think that's very important. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Bankrupting the U.S. Economy is No Solution. Michel Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The global research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's Long War Against Humanity. Visit globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.